Good morning, Redemption City Church. Wonderful to see all of you. It's also wonderful to see the sun this morning. It's a rarity in West Michigan this time of year, so I always feel grateful. Um, Today's scripture reading comes from Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. And this is on page 208 of the Bibles in the pew back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home and need one, please feel free to take one of these with you as a gift from our church. So again, Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Redemption City. Am I on? No? What do I need to do? Now am I on? Good? Okay, great. Uh, If I don't know you yet, my name is Mark. I am a member here at the church. Glad to be uh, with you on this Sunday coming out of our Thanksgiving comas. I trust that you all are awakened from your comas at this point. I actually finished off the last of our turkey just this past Friday. I smoked the bird this year. Highly recommend it. Uh, I have never actually really been that interested in turkey at all. But this was like eating a campfire. It was pure (laughs) glory. And the leftovers were unbelievable. We made smoked turkey fettuccine alfredo and my smoker has two levels of grates and so i put a drippings pan under the turkey while i smoked it and made the gravy out of the smoky drippings and we took that gravy and put it in the alfredo sauce (laughs) yeah i think i gained about 10 pounds just looking at that meal and then i ate it so behold this is what has transpired. We'll get back in shape here. I'll turn it all around. Uh, We had a great holiday. My parents flew in uh, from Seattle to spend about a week with us. They got off the plane and promptly bought every bottle of French and Italian wine sold in the greater Grand Rapids area. And so it was a week of family and feasting, I'm sure, not unlike the week for many of you. But for all of that smoke and wonder, 
we all know, I think we all know at this point in our lives, that time with family can be complicated, right? Family is a great occasion for enjoyment, for feasting, for delight, but also family can be a source of our deepest pain, right? I've spoken to some of you about that. Some of you have shared with me stories of your own family pain. This thing continues to sink, so I'm going to try and tighten it. And it's hard. It's hard. Each one of us have a different family story that we come from, and it's still sinking. (laughs) There we go. Right in the middle of a poignant moment. Um, We're family. This is my own trauma that I'm experiencing here. And it's confusing, right? When you are from a certain place, you have a certain heritage and roots that you come from, you think in your mind, am I supposed to spend time with these people? Is this where I belong? Or am I supposed to run from these people? Am I supposed to get as far away as possible? Is this a place of safety where I can nest? Or is this a place that is dangerous? And it's confusing when all those things kind of mix together. It's alienating even to see that the place that defines you in so many ways, the place where you get the most identity, can also be the place that wounds you the most deeply. And so it's appropriate that during this time of year, we're now in the second week of Advent, we are looking back at the family line of Jesus, even as we all face the difficulties and the challenges and the joys that go along with engaging with our families more during the holiday season. We're in a series where we're looking at the mothers of Jesus. That is those matriarchs, those women that were so pivotal in the family line of Jesus. And as we look back into the family line of Jesus, we see that actually the Bible tells it to us straight. The Bible is not engaged in propaganda in any respect when it comes to the family line of Jesus. There is no PR being done here on behalf of the Israelites, on behalf of Jesus' family line. His line is full of heartbreak and shame and pain and loss, just like yours. And so how appropriate that we're looking into that story during this time of year when many of us are having to face a lot of that in our own stories. What's profound as we look at these stories is that the people that were to steward these stories for us, that is the Jewish authors, the tellers and retellers of these stories, those who pass them down from generation to generation, while not mincing words, while not shrinking back from the shame and the heartache that's in these stories, they also dared to tell these stories in a frame of hope. Over and over again, they reframe and frame these stories in hopefulness. And it's our great privilege now as people who receive that tradition and are now the storytellers of our time to participate in that same hopeful tradition, that same kind of hopeful storytelling. Even amid all of the hardship and pain that is in the family line of Jesus, there is much hope. And our story for today begins with a family living in Bethlehem in the time of 
the judges. This is a time in the history of the Israelite people before they had a king. And God had appointed judges to lead them. And by and large, the people of Israel were a stiff-necked people during this time. They were not submitting to God. In fact, the book of Judges tells us that during this period of time, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And possibly because of that, or in part because of that, a great famine has fallen on the land. And so our family, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, they leave town. They leave Bethlehem. They travel out of Judea around the Dead Sea to the east over to the nation of Moab, which was a country that was historically and regularly hostile to the people of God. This wasn't a great decision. It was a decision born of desperation. They were looking for food. They traveled to a land where likely they would not be welcomed. And predictably, it didn't go well. Elimelech, the father, dies shortly thereafter, shortly after arriving in Moab. We don't know how. But then his two sons disobey the commands of God. Rather than returning with their mother back to their homeland, they take Moabite women as wives, something forbidden in God's law. And that also does not go well. In the span of about a decade, the two sons wind up dead. And now we have Naomi, their mother, left in this very precarious predicament. She is in a country where her only family are two childless widows. She has no other connections there. In a country that's historically hostile to her people. And this is in a time when children are the social security plan. So having children is the way that women ensure that they will be protected and cared for into their old age. To be a childless widow is about as bleak of a circumstance as you can find yourself in. And we have three childless widows here in our story. Now, Naomi has almost no choice at this point but to return to her homeland, to travel back to Bethlehem. What's more, she has heard reports that the famine in Bethlehem and throughout, throughout Judah has passed, that there is food back in the land. She has to go back. But the situation for her daughters-in-law is quite different. For one, Orpah and Ruth are much younger than Naomi. And so their prospects for remarrying are quite decent, especially if they remain in their homeland, if they remain in Moab. What's more, they are in their homeland. They're surrounded by a network of family and friends and those whom they have known since childhood. And so they have prospects for sustenance. But there's an issue here. And that issue is that Orpah and Ruth... Both of these daughters-in-law really love Naomi. In fact, they feel quite attached to her. So when Naomi first begins her journey back to Bethlehem, when she strikes out onto this journey, Orpah and Ruth, they tag along at first. Uh, Rabbinic tradition tells us that they go with her for about four miles before Naomi stops them. And we read in the scriptures that She begins to reason with them to stay behind, to turn 
back. These two women whom she clearly loves, she tells them, stay in Moab. Why in the world would you come with me? I have no more sons to give you. No more opportunity for marriage attends me in my circumstance. What's more, I'm not likely to remarry and have more sons. She speaks facetiously. Even if I got married tonight, got pregnant tonight, and had twins in nine months, you'd have to wait for more than a decade plus before they were of age for you to marry. Would you really wait all those years? There is no reason for you young women to forfeit your chance at a life and attach yourselves to me, whom God has clearly turned his hand against. She says, stay here. She makes the case. And this is sound, wise, selfless counsel that Naomi is giving. It's a disadvantage to her to travel alone, to forfeit these two family members, but she clearly loves them and counsels them well. And Orpah receives the counsel, albeit through tears. She doesn't want to break away from Naomi. She feels quite attached to her, but she sees the wisdom of Naomi's words, and with a broken heart, she says goodbye to her mother-in-law and returns to Moab. What about Ruth? What would you do in this circumstance if you were in Ruth's shoes? Just the other morning, I cooked up some bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches. You'll notice I talk a lot about food. That's because I really, really like it. Um, Most mornings, I cook bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches for my wife and I. We have breakfast together. And I flipped on a playlist just to listen to some music. My wife was taking the boys to school. I was waiting for her to come back from dropping them off so we could enjoy our delicious sandwiches. And I just started to listen to a random playlist of some indie songwriters. It's a way to kind of discover new music that I like to use. And I started listening carefully to the lyrics. And in each of the first four songs, there were lyrics dealing primarily with the theme of home. Longing for home, returning home, reimagining home, despising home. And I mentioned this to Acacia when she got home. I said, you know, home. I said, you know, each of these songs is speaking about this same theme. And as soon as I had shared it with her, on cue, the fifth song came on with an ode to a childhood home. And I commented, maybe the more untethered people feel, the more they start to think about home. It seems to me that a lot of people feel increasingly untethered in our brave new Western world. Because a lot of the things that have historically tethered us are coming apart, or at least seem to be. They're fraying. The things that defined us, the thing that held us in place, we're not so sure that they're going to be there for us. Things like faith and Family and marriage and gender, all these things that help define us and locate us and tell us who we are, they're fraying, they're falling apart. And so I think maybe there's this tendency to try to grasp for whatever whatever tethers remain, 
Is there something that can still tell me who I am? Something that can still locate me? Something that I can still derive identity from so I don't have to just fabricate my whole understanding of myself from whole cloth, from thin air? And maybe home is one of those tethers that we can grip and hold on to, a sense of home. If you'll indulge me on this music kick just a bit longer, my new favorite album dives deep into these issues of home and dislocation and not knowing where you belong, disconnection. Every 10 years or so, an album drops that just happens to line up perfectly with where I'm at. Maybe that's the same for you. And this is that album for me. It's by an artist named Noah Kahn. He jokingly calls himself the Jewish Ed Sheeran. Uh, The album is Stick Season. If you like songs written with the cleverness and insight of Paul Simon, combined with the catchy, folksy hooks of Bob Dylan... You might like Noah Kahn. I only wish I could praise him higher, but, you know, I'm doing what I can. The title track of Stick Season has a great line in it where we, we, we listen to this. So I thought that if I piled something good on all my bad, that I could cancel out the darkness I inherited from Dad. That's a good line. That's a good line. If ever there were a line that captures the complexity and the confusion of family... Perhaps that it is. The darkness I inherited from dad. Not some unknown, distant patriarch. Dad. Daddy. But what do I do with all this darkness? Another line from the album, from my favorite song on the album, a song called Growing Sideways, says, I'm still angry at my parents for what their parents did to them. But it's a start. (laughs) I love that. Family is complicated. It's painful. It's confusing. My wife's favorite song on the album is The View Between Villages. It's the closing track on the album. I asked you to indulge me. <laughs> Listen to these words. The song is a song about actually traveling home. Okay, the actual drive home from being an adult who's moved away and now you're heading back home. And it starts out with this kind of positivity, feel the rush of my blood. I'm 17 again. I am not scared of death. I've got dreams again. It's just me and the curve of the valley, and there is meaning on earth. I am happy. He's feeling the vigor of youth, remembering his teen years, remembering the richness of what it was to grow up when dreams could just be dreams, and they weren't marred by dashed hopes. Then think gets a little bit closer to home, And the song begins to build and it begins to turn. Past Algebraic Road, I'm over the bridge, a minute from home, but I feel so far from it. The death of my dog, the stretch of my skin, it's all washing over me, I'm angry again. The things that I lost here, the people I knew, they got me surrounded for a mile or two. Some of you have had that experience, I have no doubt driving home, you see a landmark, you see something that triggers a memory, and suddenly the rush of all of the sadness and pain and nostalgia, it all sort of mixes together in this confusing pile. That's the kind of moment that Ruth finds herself in here. 
The particular circumstances are different. Her childhood home was Moab. But for the last 10 years, throughout most of her teenage years and her early 20s, she has built a deep familial bond with Naomi. Naomi, for her, has been the vision of home. It's to find home for her. And it's clear that these two women, their bond is is familial. It's not just in-law-like. It's family-like. And yet now, Naomi has become a vision of loss, an emblem of loss. She is a woman stricken with grief. What's more, Naomi has made the case for Ruth to turn back to Moab, and it's an open and shut case. There is no sound reason for Ruth to go on with Naomi to Bethlehem, to Judah. That's what makes this scene so extraordinary. There are moments in our lives when inspiration leads us beyond reason, when we access a knowledge that's beyond understanding. We can't see into Ruth's mind or heart here in this particular moment, but we can hear her words. We read them a moment ago. I'm going to read them again. She delivers this heartfelt and eloquent statement of loyalty and courage. She is resolute in her decision. And she says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. There's a lot here. But you can see in these words, Ruth clearly loves Naomi deeply. And she will not leave her without family by her side. What's more, we see that Ruth declares her devotion to the God of Israel. We don't know if Ruth had already encountered the God of Israel. She's been living with an Israelite family for 10 years, but no matter, she declares that devotion now. She encounters him now. She embraces him now. It's no stretch for me to surmise that the qualities in Naomi that produced affection in Ruth for her also commended Naomi's God to her. Ruth can see that Naomi is a true and honorable woman who is walking in a path that is worth following, and she wants it. She wants to follow. Her resolve in the face of all of this countervailing wisdom, the sound reason and arguments that are made to return to Moab, it leads me to believe that she is intentionally following God here. That she has seen enough of the Israelite God to know that is the God I will follow. I'll be attaching myself to him and to his people. She is stepping in to what she can only assume will be more hardship. Hardship upon hardship has befallen Naomi. Much more hardship than if she returns to Moab among family and friends and remarries and has a life there. But she's being true to where the story of her life is leading her. 
every single one of us will have a few pivot point moments like this over the course of our life. Just a few. Maybe two. Maybe even one. Pivotal moments that can reshape the trajectory of our life forever. Moments when the redemptive arc that God is building across our lives leads us somewhere that is unexpected. Now, if you aren't paying attention, you'll miss it. If you aren't paying attention, you will miss these moments. One, two, just a few of them that come across the scene of your life, the scenes of your life. And by paying attention, I don't mean neurotically obsessing over every thought that bounces around in your mind. I have to get every little decision right. In fact, I mean just the opposite of that. I mean letting the clear, simple truths of God direct your steps. Living a quiet life devoted to him. Taking up the honorable tasks that he sets before you. Living faithfully, to the people who depend on you. This is not a hard decision for Ruth. That's what's so astonishing about this moment. All of reason would send her back to Moab, and yet she is so resolute to go forward with Naomi. It's not a hard decision for her because she loves Naomi, and she loves the God of Naomi more than she loves her own life. And so she simply follows them. She says, love is leading me this way. Ruth's determination, seeing it, Naomi doesn't make any more protests. She relents and allows Ruth to come with her. And the two women make their way to Bethlehem together. When they arrive there, Bethlehem, you need to understand, is a very small town. Some of you grew up in small towns. Everybody is in everybody's business. Everybody knows who everybody is. And so the town remembers Naomi. And they say, is this not Naomi who left, you know, more than 10 years ago? And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi, the name Naomi means pleasant. She says, now, from now on, call me Mara, which means bitter, because she says, God has dealt bitterly with me. Naomi is despondent. Naomi is feeling defeated. The loss and pain of her family's hardship is too much for her. But this is where Ruth's loyalty really begins to matter because Ruth has what seems to be this otherworldly determination to make the most of this very difficult circumstance that these widows find themselves in. Of her own initiative, she approaches Naomi with a plan. She proposes that she join the impoverished women in Bethlehem who follow behind the harvesters in the field and glean whatever extra barley falls behind so that they can stay alive, so that they can have food to eat. And with irrepressible hopefulness, Ruth says that she will glean after the harvester in whose eyes she finds favor. She says, Naomi, I've got a plan. I'm going to go out among the most destitute women in this city, and I'm going to find favor with one of these harvesters. And that's where I will glean, and we're going to be okay. This is a woman of faith. You can see this. She expects God's grace to attend her. Gleaning was a practice in this culture that was commanded by God in Leviticus 
the farmers, the harvesters were told to let some of the grain fall behind for the sake of the poor. But this was for the most vulnerable and destitute in the society. There were vulnerable women, largely, who were practicing this gleaning way of making a living. And because all of the male harvesters were there out in the fields, often this was a very dangerous situation for these women. They could be taken advantage of. They could even be assaulted on occasion. Undeterred by this danger, Ruth enters the fields, and we read this in chapter 2, verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She happened to come to the field of Boaz, a man related to her father-in-law. Why am I highlighting the word happened? Well, because the Hebrew author does. The Hebrew author actually uses an idiom here uses the same root, meaning to happen, in both the subject and the verb of the sentence. Does what is quite common in Hebrew literature. Hebrew is a very playful language. There's a lot of meaning in the text that's not just spelled out for you in story form, but it's given to you quite clearly. If we were to translate this sentence in a way that captured the playfulness of the Hebrew here, we might actually read Ruth's happening happened to come to the part of the field of Boaz. Ruth's happening happened. And as a reader, you're thinking, no, that's, okay, that's odd. The writer is using idiom to draw out irony. God is directing Ruth's steps. The point is, there is no happenstance here. Ruth, remember this young woman who was born a Moabite, a people hostile to God. She grew up hostile to God's people, hostile to God's ways. But her happening happened to marry into the only Jewish family in her town. And her happening happened to build a deep bond with her mother-in-law. And her happening happened to see all the men of her family die, requiring this return trip to Bethlehem. And her happening happened to take up gleaning as a means of sustenance of all the possible ways that they could have survived. And her happening happened to come to the field of Boaz. And his happening happened to come check on workers that day at that very hour. God is directing the course of Ruth's life. He is writing a story across her choices in a profoundly providential way. And what's more, he is telling a story across the events of your life. Every one of us, his people, are those who look for the signs of his hand in that story. His people are those who pay attention and with gratefulness see the way that he is weaving things together. Even when you cannot see it, you continue to look. You study for the faithfulness of God to see how the shape of your life is taking on the ark of redemption. Because that is who God is. He is a redeeming God 
who tells stories of redemption across the lives of people. Ruth, when she encounters Boaz, she asks him, can I remain in your field? Can I continue to reap here? And Boaz responds with great kindness. He says, reap nowhere else. Reap only in my field. And I will instruct my men to keep you safe. And when you're thirsty, you can drink from the vessels of water that my men fill. Ruth is overcome with gratitude here. Overcome with gratitude. She went out into the field expecting God's grace. She expected to find favor, but she's not entitled to it. She's filled with gratitude. She falls on her face before Boaz and says, Why are you having such favor on a foreigner? Why have I found such favor in your eyes? And Boaz tells her that his happening happened to hear the whole story of how she left her people to remain loyal to Naomi, to care for her mother-in-law, and to leave her family behind. And Boaz pronounces God's blessing on Ruth. Chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a blessing. What a word. From Boaz. It's as much a promise as anything else that the wings of the God of Israel are a refuge, that Ruth is safe, that she is right where she is supposed to be, that God conspired for her to be here. At mealtime, Boaz invites her to his table, makes sure she is well fed. She goes home that day with leftovers from that meal, as well as a bunch of barley that they can eat. She recounts to Naomi all that Boaz has done for them. And hope is reborn in the heart of Naomi. Naomi breathlessly tells Ruth, Boaz is our Gael. It's a Hebrew word. It means redeemer. It means family redeemer. It means kinsman redeemer. There's a practice in ancient Israel when a woman who is childless is widowed that a family member, a close family member to her deceased husband would redeem her, would marry her so that she might have the opportunity to bear children and be safe and protected well into her old age. So as Ruth continues to glean in the field of Boaz and benefit from his kindness and favor, Naomi, hope now percolating within her, develops a plan to let's say, highlight Boaz's potentially redeeming role in their lives. Boaz has the potential to make them whole, to make all things right and good in their story. And so on a night when Naomi knows that Boaz will be winnowing barley on his threshing floor, she tells Ruth, take a bath, put on some perfume, make yourself lovely, And then go to the threshing floor, and after Boaz has eaten and laid down to sleep, uncover his feet, lay down there, and wait for him to tell you what to do. Ruth does just as Naomi instructs. She goes to the threshing floor. She uncovers the feet of the sleeping Boaz. She lays there at his feet. Now, 
what's going on here? <laughs> Seems kind of a strange situation. Some scholars have postulated that this was a sexual encounter. Not so. All the evidence in the text points away from that. In Israelite culture, the intent to marry was signified by a groom casting his garment over the bride as a sign of his intent to cover her, to bring her into his house. Here, Ruth shrewdly uncovers Boaz's feet, giving him the option of simply recovering his feet or casting the garment over her as well as a sign of his intent. When Boaz is startled in the night, he wakes up, he sees Ruth there lying at his feet. She actually spells it out for him, asking him to spread his wings over her as a redeemer. She speaks of this practice, this law, calls him to fulfill his obligation. And Boaz blesses her again in this moment, calls her proposal for marriage to him a kindness even greater than the first kindness that she did in coming to Judah with Naomi. Boaz says, Ruth, rather than chasing after young men, rather than pursuing you know, a good-looking young guy that you could love and build a life with, you've sought redemption not just for you, but also for your mother-in-law. This image, I think, captures it well. This is a painting from 1390 from the Wentz, so-called Wentz Bible, when Saslis the king in Germany had this Bible commissioned, the first Bible ever translated into German, some hundred plus years before Martin Luther's translation. I think the image captures the spirit of the moment. In the morning, Boaz goes to the city gate to ensure that another redeemer, another kin, actually nearer in relation to Elimelech, will relinquish his right to redeem Ruth and Naomi, he's following all of the correct and honorable practices of the time. Again, more evidence that their encounter was not untoward. He speaks to the honor of Ruth in that encounter, and now he engages in this honorable way, making sure that this person who's closer related will relinquish the right before he redeems Ruth. When that man does relinquish his right, Boaz happily takes Ruth as his wife, redeeming her and Naomi And the witnesses at the city gate proclaim a blessing on Ruth that she will build up the house of Israel with children like the great matriarchs before her, Rachel and Leah. And to Boaz, they say in Ruth 4, chapter 12, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is a prophetic blessing. We learned of Tamar Last Sunday, if you weren't here, you can hop online and listen to Pastor Mike's sermon, Tamar, whom God enfolded into the line of Jesus, blessing her with a son, Perez. Boaz is the great, 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 great grandson of Perez. Four greats. I checked the begets carefully, but you can double-check my work. And so Ruth like Tamar, a destitute widow, is enfolded into this noble line. Boaz and Ruth give birth to Obed, who begets Jesse, who begets David, King David, the most famous ancestor of the coming Christ. When Obed is born, Naomi, now overflowing in hope, 
realized, takes the child into her lap and becomes his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood call her blessed. It's actually the neighborhood women who witnessed this transformation in Naomi from being called bitter to now being filled with hope and blessing who name little Obed. And Obed's name means worshiper. Church, each one of us lives in the middle of our story. We don't know exactly where God is leading. We don't know exactly how God is going to bring it to pass, how the redemptive arc of his hand will lead us. He is the God of redemption. And so all we know is that his purposes will not be thwarted. If you doubt that in your life, if you're in a place in life where you doubt the redemptive purposes of God, if you doubt whether his purpose for redemption in your story will not be thwarted, you don't have to look into the future and try to guess how he's going to work it all out. You don't have to be a fortune teller and just wonder. No, you can look back and up if you dare. Christ coming into the world, Christ on the cross, is a vision for the ages of our redeeming God. His outstretched arms are the wings of the God of Israel. And he is a refuge for his people. There is safety in him. Look back at the man descended from Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba. Look at the one who was not ashamed to step into this family marked by brokenness and loss and pain. Look at the one who was himself broken. And if you won't look, if you feel you can't look, if your pain is too great even to lift your head, then know this. He is looking at you. He sees you. And he is leading you wherever you are, near or far, from the streets of ancient Moab to those of western Michigan. You are just the sort of person that he loves. One stamped with his image, born of his will, conceived in his mind, redeemed by his blood. He is telling a good story across the events of your life. Boaz and Ruth were a type and shadow of things to come. Jesus is the redeemer of the whole world, and his happening has happened into your story today. He's here among us now. The prophet Isaiah tells us, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. Jesus is 
the true Boaz. So come, all you Moabites, you widows, you brokenhearted, you who are overwhelmed by the story of your own family, worn out by it, you who don't know your way home, come lay at his feet, and he will tell you what to do. Father, we thank you that we are not lost to you. That over the course of our lives, as we make our choices and take our steps, that you are at work in all these things. We thank you that we can trust you as we walk this path. Though we can't see, though we are even blind at times, you are not blind to where you are leading us. And you are making our paths straight and arcing our lives toward goodness We thank you for the testimony of Ruth, this Moabite girl who was folded into the line of your son. And we thank you for the produce of her marriage to Boaz that brought our Christ into the world. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he broke into our story and is our redeemer and now sits enthroned in heaven to rule and reign. Lord, we trust you. Jesus, you are good. There is no one like you, and we worship you. Amen.